0: Acts 25, part one, in the sermon series, Acts of the Holy Spirit, spoken by Pastor Peter on. Uh, Thank you for joining us today. Uh, So for the past 18 months or so, we have been in the study in the book of Acts. We've been going sort of half a chapter at a time or so, sometimes an entire chapter. And we've been spending a lot of time because we want to sort of understand and see how the Holy Spirit works, uh, especially in the first church. And uh, so we've been really kind of going deep into that. And so now we are sort of at almost the tail end of this. We'll be done in early November. Uh, I know it's kind of sad. We took this journey together as a church. But sort of this tail end of Acts, what we're looking at is really the life of Paul the apostle. And what we're seeing here now is really this thing of Paul going to jail. He's been in jail for two years. He's suffered. He's going through a hard time. Paul is at a place now where he is not certain if he's going to live or die. He has no idea what's going to happen. And so really towards the tail end of Acts now, we're going to learn deeper of how you and I can sort of handle, overcome difficult adversities in our lives, difficult seasons. Now, I know, I don't need to tell you, especially if you're older here, that as we live life, we know that adversities are just a part of life. Difficult seasons are just a season of life. They're just like the weather here. We have all four seasons. I lived in L.A. for three years and it was just weird. It was hot every day. No winter. 85 degrees on Christmas Day was really a weird experience for me for the first time for my wife and I. But here, you know that there are different seasons and we're going to go through different seasons in life. And I think all of you here in this room, you would agree with me that challenging seasons, especially those that are really difficult, are are oftentimes hard to overcome. But here's the truth about it. If you can learn to overcome them, they will actually be one of the greatest blessings in your life. Tom Brokaw wrote a book many years ago. Some of you might have heard of it. It was a New York Times bestseller when it came out. It's called The Greatest Generation. And in his book, he talks about uh, this generation that had to endure the Great Depression and World War II. It was some of the, diff- the most difficult, challenging time in the history of our, of our country. And he said that it was those that generation that endured those two key difficult seasons, the Great Depression and World War II that made America what it is today, the most powerful country in the world, even till this day. And he says that it was because of that adversity, although we never thought it was a gift when they went through it, was truly the greatest gift for our country. How do we allow that to happen in our own lives? How do we allow tragedies and hardships and losses, difficult things in our life, how do we allow it to get to a place where we see it as probably one of the greatest gifts we've ever been given? Now if you're going through that today, if you're going through some loss, we've had even folks this week that have lost loved ones, parents. And if you're going through that, I don't think you can be in a right place to see that now. But as you go into life, and as, as, as hopefully as you mature into life, I hope that one day you will see that as probably one of the greatest blessings life has ever given to you, because Paul teaches us in Romans that the adversities in our life builds perseverance, character, and hope. And so, what I want to do today, as we look at Acts 25, uh, I want to sort of help us to see how do we overcome um, difficult seasons in our life so that eventually they become one of the most enduring, uh, endearing, richest seasons for us. That's what I'd like to share with you today in this sermon. How do we overcome difficult seasons in our life so that eventually it becomes a blessing? In our lives. And so we're going to look at Acts chapter 25. We're going to go through verses 1 through 24. And uh, we all know that last Sunday we looked at Governor Felix. Uh, Governor Felix was the governor of Caesarea. And he was there. And uh, Paul stands trial before him, states his defense. Uh, Felix likes Paul, but doesn't like him enough to let him go. And so he keeps him in prison for two whole years. During that time, Felix is not a good governor. In fact, he was horrible. And so he had to be removed. He was. He couldn't deal with the insurrections properly. He lacked character. He wanted bribes, even from Paul. He, he loved that kind of money. So he wasn't a very good leader. And so he was removed, and now Festus comes in. Festus, who is sort of like an atheist, kind of, didn't know anything about the Jewish faith. He started his post and his position. Governor Festus takes place, and he decides to go up to Jerusalem to pay his respects to the chief priest. And here's what happens here. We're going to look at verse 1, chapter 25. Three days after arriving in the province... Festus went up from Caesarea to Jerusalem, where the chief priests and the Jewish leaders appeared before him and presented the charges against Paul. They requested Festus as a favor to them to have Paul transferred to Jerusalem, for they were preparing an ambush to kill him along the way. Festus answered, Paul is being held at Caesarea, and I myself am going there soon. Let some of your leaders come with me, and if the man has done anything wrong, they can press charges against him there. After spending eight or ten days with them, Festus went down to Caesarea. The next day, he convened the court in order that Paul be brought before him. When Paul came in, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him. They brought many serious charges against them, but they could not prove them. Then Paul made his defense. I have done nothing wrong against the Jewish law or against the temple or against Caesar. Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, said to Paul, Are you willing to go up to Jerusalem and stand trial before there?" Before me there on these charges. Paul answered, I am now standing before Caesar's court where I ought to be tried. I've not done any wrong to the Jews, as you yourself know very well. If, however, I am guilty of doing anything deserving death, I do not refuse to die. But if the charges brought against me by these Jews are not true, no one has their right to hand me over to them. I appeal to Caesar. After Festus had conferred with his council, he declared, you have appealed to Caesar, to Caesar you will go. Now, so because Festus was so unaware of the Jewish faith, he didn't know how to present this case to Caesar. And so what happened was King Agrippa, Herod Agrippa II, decides to visit Festus to pay his respects. King Agrippa was half Jewish. She knew the Jewish faith much better than, of course, Festus. And so we find here that Festus begins to confide in him. In verse 13, it says, a few days later, King Agrippa and Bernice arrived at Caesarea to pay their respects to Festus. Since they were spending many days there, Festus discussed Paul's case with the king. He said, there is a man here whom Felix left as a prisoner When I went to Jerusalem, the chief priests and the elders of the Jews brought charges against them and asked that he be condemned. I told them that it is not the Roman custom to hand over anyone before they have faced their accusers and have had an opportunity to defend themselves against the charges. When they came here with me, I did not delay the case, but convened the court the next day and ordered the man to be brought in. When his accusers got up to speak, they did not charge him with any of the crimes I had expected." instead they had some points of disputes with him about their own religion and about a dead man named jesus who paul claimed was alive i was at a loss how to investigate such matters so i asked if he would be willing to go to jerusalem and stand trial there on these charges but when paul made his appeal to be held over the emperor's decision i ordered him until i could send him to caesar then agrippa said to festus i would like to hear this man myself he replied Tomorrow, you will hear, him. next Sunday, Metro, you will hear Paul's uh, defense against uh, King Herod Agrippa, and from there, we'll talk, next Sunday is kind of like part two of how do we endure difficult seasons in our life. This is the word of God. Let's bow our heads for a moment of prayer. Uh, if you are going through a difficult season right now, can I just give you a moment to prepare your heart to receive from God? Maybe you've gone through a difficult season, years past, but... Um, the pain of that still continues even to this day. There's a void in your own heart. Um, I'm going to ask that you would just pray that uh, the Holy Spirit would really speak boldly to you today. I'm going to give you a moment to do that, and I'm going to just open us up in prayer today. So let's go to him. Lord, worthy is your name, it truly is. Thank you that we can sing that today. Be a reminder of how worthy you are. God, sometimes as we go through hardships and difficult seasons, it's so hard, Father, to even be able to sing a song like that. And so I pray for anyone here that might be going through a difficult season, a loss, a hardship, or maybe those who've gone through it many years ago, maybe even a a few decades ago, um, but they still carry those pains, those wounds are still fresh. I pray that you would speak to us, and for all of us here in this room that may not be going through that or have been healed from it, God, would you allow this message to really sink deep within our hearts, um, so God, that we can continue to know how worthy you truly are of our lives. So thank you, Lord, for this time. I pray that you would speak to us, and I pray that the words that come out of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts, God, I pray that it would indeed be pleasing unto you. And all of God's people said, Amen. All right, so how do we do this? How do we overcome difficult seasons in our life? Well, really, the, the, only, the key way is for you and I to begin to trust in God, that we have to learn to trust in God. Now, I know that might seem a bit elementary for some of you here in this room, uh, but I am telling you right now, when you go through a difficult season in your life, do you know how hard it is to trust in a God that you can't see, you can't touch, you can't, phys- you can't physically hear? It's hard, isn't it? It's not easy, although we can say it with maybe our lips. It's very difficult for us to sort of believe in our hearts that during a rough season in our life that we can truly get to a place where we can just say, I trust you, God. I trust you, God. Paul was in prison for two years. He was in prison for something he didn't do that deserved him to be in prison for two years. The only reason why he was in prison was because he believed that Jesus Christ has risen from the dead. That's why he was put in prison for two years. Even Governor Fester says he doesn't deserve what he already received. It was wrong of him to be there. And we find that in prison, Paul was trusting in the Lord. We know that to be true because we see kind of his, the fruits of his life afterwards, right? And so for Paul, he trusted in God. And I'm telling you right now, one of the hardest things for us to do is that as we go through hardships in our life is to begin to trust in God, right? How do you know you're trusting in God today? How do you know that you're actually living in trust in God? Because we can say we do, but how do we doing in that? How do we know? What's the tangible barometer that we can use? Look at your obedience meter. Where is that meter? So if you're going through a challenging moment in your life right now, do you see your obedience meter going way high? Or do you see it start to dip down to the left? Right? Sometimes we don't because of the pain and the loss and the grief and the things that we struggle with, sometimes the only way we can numb it is to participate in some sins that we feel like maybe it will numb it for just a little while. I totally get that, been there, done that. But I'm telling you right now, numbing your pain will never lead to healing. In fact, it will lead to a deeper, more darker, addictive behavior. And the thing that you naturally do is that when you fall into that pattern is that you start to separate yourself from God's love. And you begin to live your life not as a child of God, but as a slave to the enemy. It's a very deep, dark place to be. How do we know that Paul was trusting in God? It's because of his obedience, even while he was in prison. How do we know that? Look at verse 10. Look at verse 10. Paul answers Festus, I am now standing before Caesar's court where I ought to be tried. I've not done any wrong to the Jews as you yourself know very well. If, however, I am guilty of doing anything deserving death, I do not refuse to die. But if the charges brought against me by these Jews are not true, no one has their right to hand me over to them. I appeal to Caesar. Now, I know that uh, Paul was saying this also because he didn't want to die. He knew that if he would go to the Jews that they were going to kill him. Uh, he knew that. But that's not the only reason why Paul said that. Oh, he requested it. He requested it because he was obeying God. Because God appeared to him in, in Acts chapter 23, verse 11. Can we put that up on the screen? Acts 23, 11. Here's what God says to Paul. The following night, the Lord stood near Paul and said, Take courage. As you have testified about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. God had told Paul, commanded him that he was to go to Rome and testify before Caesar. And so here is the challenge that Festus gives to him. And Paul is being obedient to God even in that difficult trying time in his life. You see, obedience is such a key part to us sort of affirming that we truly do trust in our God. Many of us, unfortunately, when we go through hardships in our life, obedience is not something that is very high in our priority list, rather it's uh, very low. And uh, listen, I think the best thing we can do today simply is this, that if you're struggling in life and you find the obedience meter going to the left, I just want you to know that it's not okay necessarily, but it's okay if you go to him and ask him to forgive you of what you're doing. And the best way to do that is to confess it to somebody that you're, that, somebody that you know that, you, that cares for you and will pray with you, that you would go and confess the struggle so that they could begin to keep you accountable and help you through that in your own life. One of the best ways in how we can encounter God and see an adversity as a gift in our life is when we can begin to trust in God as we learn to obey Him with the most strictest of obedience. There's so much beauty and goodness that can come from an adversity in our lives. And you have to, do, you have to know that. But it's never going to come. The beauty would never be seen or captured by your eyes unless you know how to trust in God. Unless you truly believe in your heart of hearts that trusting God is the best thing that you could possibly do at this most difficult season in your life. You gotta be able to believe that, because if you don't, it's going to be very difficult for you to ever overcome a difficult circumstances, and I've seen it, I've lived it even in my own life. When a difficult situation, or a difficult season in life happens in our life, and we don't trust in God, it will own us, and it will be a very, very terrible, terrible season of life. How do you know that Paul was obeying Jesus? How do you know that he was living this life of trust? Well, really it's recorded in Philippians because in Philippians you know that Paul was in prison for those two years, he wrote this amazing book. Look, if you ever get a chance, read the entire chapter of chapter one, all right? This is what Paul does. How do you know Paul was obeying God? How do you know he was trusting him? Look at at what he writes here in verse 12 of chapter one of Philippians. He says, now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. Here's the most beautiful thing for Paul. As he trusted in God, as he lived his life in obedience, he saw something even beautiful that would come out of his time in prison. He says, you know what God is doing during this time? I'm advancing the gospel. I think that when you begin to trust in God through your circumstances and through hardships in your life, you know what people will begin to see? Jesus. And just naturally, they will be staring and seeing and meeting his presence through your ability to trust in him. And that's what was happening here. All right, look at what he says in verse 13. As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. And because of my chains, most of my brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. How amazing is that? See, that doesn't happen if you don't trust. If you don't trust, if Paul wasn't trusting in God in prison, he would not be penning these powerful words. In fact, he probably wouldn't be writing a part of the New Testament. He'd probably be wallowing in his anger and his pain and living in a state of hopelessness. Look at what he goes on to say in verse 19, which I think gives us a deeper understanding of how we can trust in God. He says in verse 19, for I know that through your prayers and God's provision of the spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed but will have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. There's only one expectation that Paul had during his time in prison. You know what was that? It was that, that he was so afraid that he would not obey God. He said, I hope I never live in that shame. And see, here's something deeper that Paul helps you and I to understand. That when we go through difficult circumstances, how do we trust in God? You obey him, but how do you know you're even obeying him? You have no expectations of God getting you out of that difficult time. You see, a lot of us, when we go through hardships in our lives, sometimes we have expectations that God will get us out as soon as possible. We We have expectations of how God should do his job in helping us to get through this difficult season. And what Paul says here, you need to pay attention to this, Metro. What he's saying here is simply this, if I die, I live a life of gain because now I can be with God. But if I live, I still have Jesus Christ. Paul didn't have an expectation that God would get him out of prison. I'm sure Paul wanted to live, but he didn't have that expectation that God would get him out. How many of us want God to get us out of the prison that we often feel like is our life? We have these expectations. And I'm telling you, those expectations can be so lethal to your soul. Because you sometimes if God doesn't sort of provide for you and, and sort of uh, uh, help you to get through those things that you hope or expect God to do, then we start to get bitter and we start to resent him, don't we? We do that all the time. And so what Paul is doing, he says, the only thing I expect and I hope I can do is I obey him. That's all I want. I don't expect him to get me out of here. I don't even expect him to make me live. That if I die, I die. Metro, I am telling you right now that as you go through your difficult season in your life, trust in God. Trust in him by not expecting anything. Maybe God doesn't want you to get out of this mess right now because he wants you to squeeze all the wisdom out of this hardship that you're going through right now. There's so much you can learn from it. There's so much that you can see, literally the hand of God's love for your life. But you can right now because maybe you're expecting him to get you out. Let go of your expectations. I hope the only thing that you expect yourself to do is that you would live your life in strict obedience by trusting in him. My son was five years old. He was playing in the house. He was running around the house with his socks on. And uh, I wooden wooden floors, very slippery. And he was running, having a good time, and I just saw him running across the hallway, making a right pivot turn to go up the stairs, and he was doing it. It was almost as if somebody took him and just threw him onto the stairs. And he fell so bad, he hit his head on the the side of the stair, and you just heard a thump, a real loud thump. And I knew it was bad because I saw the whole thing. And as soon as that happened, I sort of said, honey, go check it out. Go, I just froze, I can't see those things. I'm just like, go, go assess the situation and let me know what happens, right? And so she looks at me like, okay, and she runs over and she looks at him and she goes, it's bad, get some napkins, he's bleeding. It was bad. I saw the way his head hit that stairs. And so we get in the car, I grab some paper towel, make sure I, I put it on him, and, uh, and we go to uh, Hackensack Hospital. We get there and as I'm sitting and Christian is on my lap now, again, just so distraught by what happened to him, and he's hurting, he's bleeding, and all that stuff. The doctor takes a look at it, and he said, "Oh, huh, interesting, and he said, uh, you know, uh, he probably has a mild concussion, when I just kinda look at the depth of that laceration, and he said, in front of him, he said, I'm gonna have to give him, unfortunately, a shot in his chin to numb the pain, because we gotta sew him up, and I'm like, why are you guys to in front of the kid? He started freaking out. <laughs> this five-year-old kid, the last thing he wants is a doctor sticking a needle in his chin where it's already hurting so much. And so he's like crying, I don't want this. Let's go home. No, no, no. And he's just uncontrollable at this point. The doctor gets up to get the needle and to fill that thing up with Novocaine to sort of numb it. And as he's crying hysterically, pleading his case to saying that we need to go home, I just held him in my arms and I said, hey, buddy. I said, I hope you know that I love you. I love you so much, I hope you know that I will never let anyone hurt you and harm you. I'm only allowing the doctor to do this because it's gonna make you better, Christian. I will be with you, I will hold you in my arms when he applies that shot in you, and I will hold your hand as he performs the surgery on you. Will you trust me? Crying, he said yes. And I tell you he still cried when the doctor put the needle in him. Of course he would. He's 5 years old. But he took it like a champ. While he was the doctor, the plastic surgeon was working on his chin, I held his hand while he was laying on the bed, just making sure that he's okay. Didn't cry at all after that moment, after he got the shot, he took it like a champ. Why? You think cuz he trusted the doctors? No, that doctor was like a devil to him. <laughs> he didn't like that doctor. He didn't like him at all. Why did he allow it to happen? Why did he even allow a doctor to stick a needle in his chin? Because he trusted his father. He knew his father would not let him go through anything that he, didn't, that he didn't think was necessary for him to get better. Guys, that's me who is broken and full of sin. And I can love like that. How much more can your father, who is not broken and not full of sin, can love and take care of you during a difficult season in your life? And so Metro, you can trust in God. You really can. Why do you start to think about other things and other people and other situations? Why do you trust more in those things than God? If you're going through a hard time, I want you to know your God is worthy of your trust. Amen? Amen. Trust in him. Learn to do it. Obey him. Don't have any more expectations of what God is going to do and help you get out of this mess. Just embrace him in the mess and see the hand of God work in your life. Some of you don't even know how much God loves you because you won't trust in him. It's one of the most tragic things we can go through in life. That when we go through hardships and we don't trust in him by obeying him, and we just expect him to get us out of this mess, you have no idea what you're missing. You have no idea the things God wants to show you. But you got to trust in him like Paul. Paul didn't say, God, get me out of here. He says in Philippians, if I die, I die. If I live, I live. No expectations. The only thing I expect is to obey him. And so I don't know what situation you're going through right now, or you will go through, but don't ever forget this. You can trust in God, he loves you. Obey. Him, and start to experience what this life can be. We, we don't know God's love apart from hardships in our life. It's one of the best ways in how we can experience it. Trust in Him. Second, we will overcome difficult seasons, or it's the last thing. I only got two th- points for you today. We overcome difficult seasons by not hating people. So trusting in God through obedience, but the other thing, it's the hard part too by not hating people. Because when you begin to hate, you're not trusting in God anymore. You're trusting more in your brokenness than in God. Verse one, verse one. Three days after arriving in the province, Festus went up from Caesarea to Jerusalem, where the chief priests and the Jewish leaders appeared before him and presented the charges against Paul. They requested Festus as a favor to them to have Paul transferred to Jerusalem, for they were preparing an ambush to kill him along the way. Folks, think about this two years had passed you would think the jewish leaders would not be angry anymore you would think at least they wouldn't want to kill paul two years he's been in prison you would think that maybe because these are righteous quote-unquote men who love god you would think after two years they would show a little bit of compassion for the guy but it says here very clearly that they wanted to still kill him through an ambush What you and I need to know simply about this is that hate does not have an expiration date. When you hate somebody, all right, hate is this. When you are unwilling to forgive someone, let me just give you the definition of hate. When you are unwilling to forgive someone, that's hate. All right, and so what happens here simply is that these Jewish leaders hated Paul. Why do they hate Paul again? Because he believed in Jesus, the Messiah, Because he believed that this Messiah resurrected from the dead, that's why they hated him so much and the hate never died down. The problem with our hate is that though you might hate someone, you always will experience that hate and you then, in turn, you will always give out that hate to other people. The hate you give, Metro Community Church, is no joke. And the reason why you hate like that is because you are unwilling to forgive and you're not, you're, not, you're not willing to deal with the anger and the hate that you have towards a specific person. We find the hate that these Jewish leaders gave to Paul. It didn't come exclusively to Paul. It happened to Jesus first. Look at John chapter 19 verse 12. Look at the hate that they had for Jesus in John 19 12. From then on, Pilate tried to set Jesus free, but the Jewish leaders kept shouting, if you let this man go, you are no friend of Caesar. Anyone who claims to be a king opposes Caesar. When Pilate heard this, he brought Jesus out and sat on the judge's seat at a place known at the stone, as the stone pavement. It was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about noon. Here is your king, Pilate said to the Jews, but they shouted, take him away, take him away, crucify him. Shall I crucify your king, Pilate asked? We have no king but Caesar, the chief priests answered. Finally, Pilate handed him over to them to be crucified. This hate wasn't just reserved for Paul. This hate was given uh, experienced through Jesus. I'm sure they had hate in their lives beforehand and as a result, they ended up giving that hate to Paul. It's, here's the thing about hate, you can't conceal it. Once you have anger and hate towards other people, and you're unwilling to sort of deal with that in a proactive way than which God would like you to deal with, what happens eventually over time is that you will end up giving that hate away to people that you never, ever wish they would experience your hate. The hate you give is no joke, Metro. It's no joke. Carrie Fisher, Princess Leia from Star Wars says this, resentment is like drinking poison and waiting for the other person to die. That's what hate is. Our hate is like drinking poison and you are waiting for the other person to die. Listen, I know that for some of you in this room, you are in this situation right now today because you hate somebody. You're upset at what somebody has done to you in your life. And as a result of it, you are unwilling to deal with that hate in that way. Why is hating so wrong? I mean, what's so bad about it? Think about that for a moment because don't you think some people do deserve our hate? If somebody hurts you for no reason at all, I think they deserve a little bit of our hate, don't you think so? I mean, what's so bad about a little bit of hate? Look at what Paul says in Ephesians 4, 26 to 27. Sometimes we justify our hate, but we can't. We must deal with it as severely as Paul deals with it here in Ephesians 4. He says this, in your anger, do not sin, do not let the sun go down while you are still angry, and do not give the devil a foothold. A better way to uh, translate verse 27 in the original language is do not give the devil legal rights to your soul. Foothold means ground, legal grounds, meaning this, when you begin to hate somebody, when you have anger towards someone and you are unwilling to forgive them, the devil has legal rights to your life. Even if you want him to leave, he does not have to leave. Why? Because he has legal precedence. He has legal rights to live within your soul. That's why you and I have to deal with this. That's why it is wrong. Even though people might deserve our hate, yes, they might deserve it a little bit, but the reason you and I must deal with this ever so severely is because if we don't deal with this and we continue to live in that hate and that bitterness, what begins to happen is that we begin to give the devil legal rights to claim authority in our soul. And some of you know what that feels like. You know that you, you just can't get out. The devil's job is to torment and torture you. That's how you know the devil is living inside of you. If you ever feel tortured and tormented, be careful. Because sometimes you become more spiritual to deal with that. And it's not about you being more spiritual, it's about you having a desire to want to forgive. Forgiveness is the greatest antidote to deal with your anger and your hatred today. No matter how much you pray, no matter how much you fast, God ain't gonna do anything in your life unless you're willing to forgive. So how do we do it? Because I know forgiveness is kind of like a process. So how do we forgive? You gotta do what Jesus says in Luke 6, 27, 28. I mean, it's hard what he's teaching us here, but you got to be willing to do, look what he says here. But to you who are listening, that's you, all right? I say, love your enemies, goodness. Do good to those who hate you. Can you believe that? The nerve, right? (laughs) Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. If you can pray that prayer and live this out, you will know the height and depth and width of God's love for you. So what can you do? How do you forgive somebody? Well, start the process. Pray a blessing upon that person you hate. For the next 30 days, just do it every day. Pray a blessing upon that person's life. Your prayers in the beginning will sound very self-centered. <laughs> it, won't sound very, it won't sound like a blessing. He'll say, "God, you know, let them get hurt somehow, and let them be reminded that's how much they hurt me." You know, that's that's what you're going to be praying in the beginning, but that's not from God. That's more from you. But it's okay. At least it's a start. (laughs) Just keep praying a blessing every day, every day, and I guarantee you, by day twenty or so, maybe twenty-five, you're going to start praying a blessing. Like, God, would you bless this person in their marriage? Bless this person in their job. Bless their relationship with their kids. Let this person live under the bounty of your love, mercy, and grace. That's what will begin to happen as you pray a blessing upon those people that you hate. You got to do battle with this because Metro. if you don't do battle with this, you're never going to trust in God. You're only going to trust in your hate and your anger and your brokenness. And you're not going to live in obedience. The meter of your obedience is going to go down and it's going to be ugly. So you got to deal with this because God forbid if Paul was angry towards these Jewish people that put him in prison for two years. God forbid Paul could have been angry at Felix who liked him but didn't let him go. He could have lived in that bitterness and that hate but he did not. And we know that because he was able to write those beautiful words in Philippians one. When you and I begin to pray for a blessing upon somebody that we hate for the next month, you know what's gonna happen to you? You're gonna understand them a little bit more than you've understood them before. And you're gonna realize once the hate is removed, you're kinda similar to them. You're not very far off from them because you're just as broken as they are. Forgive, I know it's hard, I know it's hard but I hope that you will begin to do that. One of the best books I read uh, in my entire life, hands down, I read it in July. Corey Tamboon's book, Tramp for the Lord. You gotta get this book. I, it made such an impact in my life. It's, it, listen, I'm not, a, I'm not a voracious reader by no stretch of the imagination. It was the only book that I've ever read that I didn't want to end. I was so sad when I was getting down to the last few pages. It really broke my heart that this book was gonna end. It's, it, it acts as a devotional. Uh, Corey Tamboon wrote two books. The New York Times bestseller was uh, the book Hiding Place. Some of you remember that, perhaps. It's a great book, encourage you to read that, but this is part two of the book that not too many people know about. And uh, Cory Tamboon is Dutch, was Dutch. Uh, she lived in Holland during World War II. She was a Holocaust survivor. Her sister Betsy, who's an older sister of hers, and her father lived in a tiny little home in Holland. They were watchmakers, and I love that, because my father was a watchmaker, so it was just great to read a little bit about that. Um, And during World War II, when Germany occupied Holland, uh, they took over the country of Holland, uh, they obviously took all the Jews and put them in concentration camps in Germany and in Holland. And you guys all know the story of what happens to Jewish people uh, under the hands of the German regime during World War II. And so for Cory, for Betsy, for her father, Casper, they knew that because they're believers in God that they're going to hide as many Jewish people as possible. They lived in a tiny home. They were only able to fit about 12 people there. So they created this underground ring, a very elaborate where they were able to save hundreds and hundreds of Jewish people. Well, they eventually got caught by the soldiers and they were put in prison. Uh, Casper, her father, didn't live very long, a few weeks and he passed away. He wasn't healthy, he passed away. Corey and Betsy survived the prison time in Holland, but they transferred them, and they were hoping and praying it wasn't Germany, but they ended up going to the worst concentration camp, probably in the history of our world, called Ravensbrück. In there was an all-women's concentration camp. Over 20,000 women were killed in gas chambers during that time. It was a horrific place to be. It was the most inhumane place for anyone to live in and to reside in. They weren't treated like even animals. They were treated worse than that. The place was flea-infested, full of lice. They slept on beds that had all of this, and so they too were infested with lice and fleas, but Betsy was always, always the more spiritual one. They were able to smuggle, and that's a story in and of itself, a little Bible that somehow went past the guards because they checked them; they were naked. They they check you before you go to prison. So it's an amazing story. They brought in this little Bible, and they, that was the only thing that allowed them to draw closer to God every day. They treated this thing like the most valuable commodity in their lives. And one day, uh, Betsy says to Betsy was the older one, but also spiritually more mature. She said Corey, "We got to just give thanks to God for everything in our lives. Let's give thanks, but, uh, Corey, for the lice and the fleas." Corey looks at her and says, you're crazy, I'm not doing that. She says, give thanks to the lice and the fleas. She said, no, I am not giving thanks to the lice and the fleas. That is going too far, Betsy. She says, do it. She, like a good sister, she listened. She said, but she didn't mean it. God, I thank you for the lice and I thank you for the fleas. A month later, Betsy runs back and smacks her in the arm. She goes, that's why we give thanks for lice and fleas. And Cory looks at her and says, Why? Betsy was old. She wasn't very strong. In concentration camp, they had to do a lot of manual labor, but because she was frail, um, they, they, they transferred her to a place where she would knit scarves and socks for the prisoners for the wintertime. And it was sort of like downstairs in a quarter, in, in an area, and she said that the guards would be unwilling to go near them because they're always watched by the guards when they work, but they didn't want to go downstairs into that room. Why? Because they didn't want to get lice and fleas. And so what Betsy says, Betsy says, they don't even come down and look at us. You know what that's allowed me to do? I have Bible study with these ladies. I've led so many of them to Christ. We do this every single day. She smacks her smacks her on the shoulder again. She goes, That's why we give thanks for fleas and lice. (laughs) Corey's like, oh my gosh. And she says to Corey, if we ever get out of here, we gotta travel around the world and let people know how much God is a God of love how faithful he truly is. Unfortunately, she dies in prison. She's not well. I mean, they're famished. They're dying of starvation, and she caught a disease, and she died. A few weeks later, World War II was over. Corey was released. She goes back home, wonders what she should do with her life. She's not going to be a watchmaker anymore. She remembered her sister. We got to travel around the world and tell of God's faithfulness to everyone that will hear us. And so Corey decides to dedicate her life to that. She travels all around the world. That's what Tramp for the Lord's about. So powerful. And her speaking engagement took her to back to Germany one time, to Munich, to a small little church. She went up there and she preached a great sermon on forgiveness, how important it is for Christians to forgive. And after she preached that sermon, what happened next she'll never forget for the rest of her life. She saw an older gentleman walking towards her from the back. You know how after you preach a sermon, sometimes people will come and say thank you for speaking, they'd shake your hand and all that kind of stuff. Well, this person was walking from the back and she knew exactly who that was. That was the cruelest, meanest soldier at Ravensbrook. He was walking up towards her, she froze. Literally, the hairs on her neck started to stand up in the back of her neck. And as he was walking closer, she saw this man. She remembered that blue uniform he wore every single day, the visor cap, with the skull and crossbones on it. She remembered all the cruel things he did to Betsy, his sister, and to her, and to all the other women there. And as he came closer, he looks at Corey and says, a fine message you preached. How good it is to know that as you say, all of our sins are at the bottom of the sea. Stuck his hand out. Corey was frozen and didn't know what to do. And these are her exact words in her book, Tramp for the Lord, and I read as follows. And I who had spoken so glibly of forgiveness fumbled in my pocketbook rather than take that hand. He would not remember me, of course. How could he remember one prisoner among those thousands of women? But I remembered him, and the leather crop swinging from his belt. I was face to face with one of my captors and my blood seemed to freeze. He said, you mentioned Ravensbrook in your talk. I was a guard there. No." He didn't remember me, but since that time he went on, I have become a Christian. I know that God has forgiven me for the cruel things I did there, but I would like to hear it from your lips as well. Again, the hand comes out, will you forgive me? And I stood there, I who sins, I who sins had to again and again be forgiven by God, and yet I could not forgive this man. Betsy had died in that place. Could he erase her slow, terrible death simply for the asking? It could not have been many seconds that he stood there, hand held out, but to me it seemed hours as I wrestled with the most difficult thing I ever had to do. For I had to do it, I knew that. The message that God forgives has a prior condition, that we forgive those who have injured us. If you do not forgive men their trespasses, Jesus says, neither will your Father in heaven forgive your trespasses. I knew it not only as a command of God, but as a daily experience. Since the end of the war, I had a little home in Holland for victims of Nazi brutality. Those who were able to forgive their former enemies were able to also return to the outside world and rebuild their lives no matter what the physical scars. Those who nursed their bitterness remained invalids. It was as simple and as horrible as that. And still I stood there with the coldness clutching my heart. But forgiveness is not an emotion, I knew that too. Forgiveness is an act of the will, and the will can function regardless of the temperature of the heart. Jesus, help me, I prayed silently. I can lift my hand, I can do that much. You supply the feelings. And so, woodenly, mechanically, I thrust my hand into the one stretched out to me, and as I did it, an incredible thing took place. The current started in my shoulder, raced down my arm, and sprang into our joined hands. And then this healing warmth seemed to flood my whole being, bringing tears to my eyes. I forgive you, brother, I cried with all my heart. For a moment, we grasped each other's hands, the former guard and the former prisoner. I had never known God's love so intensely as I did then. But even so, I realized that it was not my love. I had tried and did not have the power. It was the power of the Holy Spirit as recorded in Romans 5.5 5, because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Amen. No one in this room will ever want to forgive anyone that's hurt them. What Corey Tamboon writes here in these pages, she said the moment she forgave this man, her greatest enemy. She said it was the most intense time she'd ever experienced God's love for her. How many of you are preventing yourself from experiencing the love that God has for you because you will not forgive those you hate today? I know they did you wrong. I know they hurt you. But Metro, understand that this is a command that God gives to you. This is not a choice. It's not an option, but it's a command And I pray that as you woodenly, mechanically forgive someone, that God will supply the emotion of love. The love he has for you. The love he has for even the person who hurt you. And it would lead to a place where you can have more shalom and peace in your life. If Corey didn't forgive this man, make no mistake about it her ministry would have been over that evening because she couldn't minister and live in bitterness at the same time, especially do it genuinely. And so Metro, who do you need to forgive today? You're never gonna trust in God and obey him when you are unwilling to forgive those people that have deeply, deeply hurt and wronged you. Bless them by praying for them and experience God's love for you. Let's pray. And so we're gonna start right now. Who is that person that you hate? If you have many, just pick one. Seriously, just pick one. Don't go through your Rolodex of hate. Just pick one, and what I want you to do right now is I just want you to pray a blessing upon them. Pray a blessing upon them right now. I'm going to give you a moment to do that. And then I'm going to pray for us. Some of you in this room, the hate you give is precipitated because of the hate you give to yourself. And the person you need to forgive probably the most is not anyone else, but it's you. Pay attention to your self-talk. What do you say when you make a mistake? What do you say to yourself when you fail? What do you say to yourself? Do you know that Jesus came and died for you? you can't treat yourself that way and maybe the person that you need to forgive the most is maybe you and so what I'd like to encourage you to do if this is you for the next 30 days I want you to pray a blessing for yourself because those who hate themselves never pray a blessing upon themselves I want you to pray that God will bless you for the next 30 days so you can receive his love for you. God, it's so hard, it's so hard to forgive. It's so easy to live in hate. But God, we know that if we go down that path, we're never gonna be able to trust you during our difficult times. As a result, we have faith in like money, paper, green colored paper. More than you. It's so sad. So sad. God, help us, Lord. Help us to trust in you. Help us to obey you, especially this obedience or forgiveness, so that we don't hate people like these Jewish leaders hated Paul. I pray that you would help us, God, to overcome the adversities, the seasons in our life, as we can begin to forgive those who have deeply wronged us and hurt us. And I pray for anyone in this room where their greatest enemy is themselves. I pray, God, that you would help them to love themselves, that they would see themselves as a son and a daughter of God rather than as a victim, that they would not find their identity as a victim. Release them from that, Jesus. Let them find their identity in being a son and a daughter of God. Release them from the identity of being a victim. In Jesus' name, I pray. Amen. Amen. There's some next steps that I'd love for you to take. We're going to have a time of prayer. I'd love for us to just continue to respond to God through prayer or through some songs. But let's flip over this communication card. The first, I'm committing myself to Jesus for the first time. If you've never done that, you need to do it. I want you to check that off, and I want you to go to the next table, which will be the second table on my left, and connect with one of our leaders there. They'll give you a new believers pack and help you to grow in your faith in God. Second, I will pray and share an area of my life where I struggle with obedience. Where is, what is that in your life? Do you have the courage to share it? Third, I will pray a blessing on an enemy for the next four weeks. I will do that. I will pray for somebody I don't like for the next four weeks. Pray a blessing upon their lives so that God can change your heart. Fourth, please send me more information about serving in Metro Kids. Uh, Metro Kids would love to have you to serve. They're currently in need of more teachers. And uh, you know, Jesus says, if you wanna be the greatest, what do he who do you say to be like? A little child. Some of you have no idea how much you can learn from a little child. And maybe this could be a great step of spiritual formation for you to serve in Metro Kids. If you're interested, please check that off and they're going to get back to you. And then fourth, I'm interested in learning more about the Thailand ambassador trip in February. We're going to be going out and taking a group out to Thailand. Uh, Scott and Christina Kwak, who are the missionaries that we support, are going to be here in two Sundays. They're going to give you an update what God's doing there and sort of an update on on what God's going to continue to do in the future of our partnership with them um, um, at Metro. So I'd love to take a group of you if you're interested uh, to come out with me to Thailand. So if you're interested, check that off and I'll get back to you this week with some more information about it. Uh the prayer team's gonna be here in the front, they'll be in the back.